and sexy back. <laughs> I can't finish that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Alan. And Mona. Mona, welcome to the show once What's again. Up, guys? Coming in for a visit. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, like we said at the top of the show, we have Mona back with us for a conversation and a topic that she recommended and we just thought would be great. And any opportunity, obviously, to have Mona back on the show whenever she wants is a pure joy for all of us here. But we're going to be talking about Christian hegemony and Christian leadership and all that kind of stuff and how that's affected our cur- our current political landscape. And for our segment this week, we are going to be having a good old-fashioned round of pursuit of the trivial and catching up a little with Mona and finding out how things are going with her. So let's get this thing started. Mona, first of all, again, we're super excited to have you here. And, and why don't you Thanks. go ahead and frame this conversation, this topic for us so we can we can get into it. So if you're like me and you have a lot of different political views around the dinner table at at the holidays, uh, you might have gotten into some interesting conversations about different things with different people in your family, like I did. And that's what my inspiration was for this conversation. And I used the word in in a conversation with some of my, you know, my close friends and family, the word hegemony. And that's not a word a lot of people have in their normal vocabulary. So let me just define it really quickly. Hegemony is uh, the dominance or leadership of one country or social group over another. And I used it in the context of trying to define for someone that we live in a hegemonic Christian nation as far as the culture and and legal perspective. So um, that person was like, oh, that's a funny word. And (laughs) I find the word really helpful. Uh, It doesn't. So so hegemony is is defining who is kind of deciding who who gets to decide culturally and politically uh, for the rest of the population? Uh, and you could also kind of frame that in terms of normativity. What who gets to decide what's normal, what's truth, what's common sense, and what's natural? That is the dominant group, and that would that you could say is the hegemonic group, especially if there are systems in place to enforce that person's dominance or that social group's dominance in society. So there's a lot of big words, um, but I find that that word really helpful to describe how I feel, even as a post-evangelical, you know, non-religious person now, that there is, especially in the current administration, a really big idea floating around conservative right-wing circles that basically this ought to be a Christian nation or it is a Christian nation and we have to get back. We have to make America great again, meaning get back to the point when Christianity was a very hegemonic, very dominant force and that Christianity is the most common sense and that it should be it should be the norm. There are different ways at arriving at hegemony, but the idea is that enforce what is the deciding group that is in control and you can influence culture in a bunch of different ways, but Christian hegemony seeks to get that from one route or another. So there's kind of people all over the landscape as to how you do that. But yeah, there's that, that's a big topic right now. Um, in a lot of the circles that I run into. Well, absolutely. I mean, America is like a big, a big experiment in this, in this one subject. And you can kind of understand, uh, political divides and social divides in our country, like 
to me on this one topic alone. Should Christianity be hegemonic or not? And and when I say hegemonic, a lot of, you know that that word carries a bit of a negative weight to it, right? It's a, it's an intense word. It's it's kind of an accusation. It doesn't necessarily mean that the hegemonic group is bad or evil. So I want to really make that distinction. So if you're listening to this and you have, you know, you tend to lean conservative right wing, when I say this word, I don't mean that it's a, a reign of terror, right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it is a dominant, you know, and, and there could I be. I think that's the clarification I was trying to make. Is there different right. ways to uh, approach and arrive at being the hegemon? But, you know, there, but it still is in, in force. It, it is a forceful thing. So it does have a negative connotation, whether you have good, like, ideals or not. And well, you yeah, know what? I mean, to be. To be quite frank, and again, I'll just jump in there and say what's on my mind without any real consequence for it, but <laughs> the uh, the idea of any one philosophy, any one type of leadership being dominant for any long, lengthy period of time without any room for anyone else is bad, is destructive. Well, depending on who you ask. If you ask the right wing, they don't believe that. They think a, a biblical theology, a theocracy is best for our country. And they believe that that's how the country was founded. And that's the way it ought to be. And we should get rid of uh, any view that threatens that. And a lot of right wing people really embrace Trump. They know he's he's not a good person. This is kind of the, the myth that floats around liberal circles that that like evangelicals have kind of just like started changing their morality or things like that. I think if you ask most evangelicals, they would say he's not a moral leader. He's not an upstanding person. He's kind of a necessary evil in order to restore Christian hegemony to the country. They believe that this should be a Christian nation and they think Trump is restoring that. So that's so, interesting. So there's a partnership me. there of two different things. And that's happened in history. You look at like Geneva or God, I hate going to the Hitler thing, but there there's been like uh Christian nationalists in all these different nations who partner with the more um rigorous, heavy-handed governments to get their agenda pushed forward. And so those partnerships are like there's antecedents all throughout history since especially the time of the Reformation. But exactly. So there's not this is not unprecedented what's happening. And I think the left is kind of baffled to understand that that curious, the curious, strange bedfellows of those two groups, the Trump's the Trump camp and the right wing. And to me, this kind of it, it makes it helps me understand the glue between the two that Christian nationalists oftentimes are also Zionists. They want to restore the new Jerusalem. They want to bring the, about the second coming. And they think that Trump is helping that happen. You know, that's an interesting perspective. And I think, you know, to, in order to really engage people in the right wing, you need to really start from that, those assumptions to have a conversation at all, because that's what they believe. So to understand why people believe that. And yeah, how it functions. And they're so passionate about restoring Christian secular dominance that they will go to great lengths to do so. And and for them, a lot of them, that includes, um, you know, the single issue voting of abortion, because abortion to them is like, you know, that's the common sense thing that they think Christianity supports. Right. That should be enforced for everybody. No holds barred. Um, but then there's versus- also LGBTQ rights. Right. And then. uh Education, like speaking about creation science in schools and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, there's all of those fall under this purview. Yeah. So the question is, should this be a Christian nation? And I I have, you know, people near and dear to my heart in in my personal life who who really genuinely believe that it should be. And I think they're very well-meaning, you know, like and like I said, Christianity to say Christianity is hegemonic uh, doesn't necessarily mean Christianity is bad. You can certainly have a benevolent hegemon. Right. You can have someone who's well-intentioned and who means well. They, they want it. They think that the, the moral fiber of 
the and the nuclear family of you know is slipping away from our fingers and we have to get it back and we have to preserve we have to conserve hence the name conservative we have to conserve the moral fiber of society and we do that through christian values and biblical morals right and getting Christian leaders elected and influencing local city governments through targeted donations. And like, I'd, I'd love to delve into some of that eventually. Um, I'll let you, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk a little more, but th- it's happening. Or that social know. safety program shouldn't exist that churches and nonprofits right. should do all of that work. It's That's not a that- very common argument. It's a very common argument. And so I think, you know, it's it's unfortunate that the right gets pegged as uncompassionate when really they just want to decentralize. They want to do the same work and take care of the poor, but they want to decentralize that work. And I think there's a lot of problems with that, which could be a whole conversation into itself. But it's just a different vision of how this the country should operate. So it's funny to me that when you really dig deep, I think the left and right has some really critical things in common. Both want a functioning positive, healthy society. You know, it's just a different vision of what that looks like and how that comes to be. One's pluralistic and one is much more conformed. Hegemonic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so the question is, should this be a country, a Christian nation? Was this a Christian nation from its founding? And here's my answer to this. And I would love to get your perspective because I'm sure you both have heard this growing up, right? I, I mean, I heard this so much growing up. America is a Christian nation. Uh, did you both hear that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we have the, the flag. I thought my church was intense. We had flags in our uh, sanctuary. We like s- stood up the soldiers who were going to go to war for the United States and prayed for them and sent them off. And like all of my friends joined the military. But I saw videos of your guys' church growing up. <laughs> we had confetti <laughs> and patriotic music. And we had a 4th of July musical and, with sequins yeah, and yeah. American eagles flying and. And man, you hear, you hear, especially on the news now, like, you know, praying and prophesying over the different people who are going to be elected. Um, like Roy Moore, right? Uh, really funny aside, uh, the author of Harry Potter, uh, JK Rowling, she was like, in narrator's voice, Roy, you know, the Roy Moore camp was right. God was in control. They just didn't realize she was a black woman. <laughs> like, that's so freaking funny. But yeah, it's alive and well today. And I think it was alive for our backgrounds. Yeah. And and I think we should definitely talk about the fear of Christians losing political power and social power is very pervasive and I think stoked by a lot of factors, including right wing media. Right. Like if Christians aren't in control and they lose hegemonic power, then they'll be persecuted like Rome. And pretty soon we're going to have people like burning Christians for torches like Nero. Right. And bigger than that, people are going to get more people will go to hell if Christians are not in control. That's like kind of the thought pattern. I don't agree with those beliefs, but I can understand that if you do believe it, that's scary as heck and you wouldn't want that to happen. Right. So there's there's positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement happening at the same time. Positive reinforcement. We get to save the world. Negative reinforcement. We're preventing something really horrible from happening. So it's a dual function. Okay, so is is the U.S. a Christian nation? I think historically, you can argue very strongly yes, but also way more no. <laughs> Let me explain. Okay, so the U.S. colonies were founded by religious refugees, and it was by region, right? So New England, you're, everyone's very familiar with the Puritans who moved to New England and founded what they called a city on a hill, a New Jerusalem, that would be a light for all the other nations, that would be a pure religious order society, a society that was theocratic based on religious ideals. And 
the Puritans were refugees, religious refugees from England, where they felt like the Anglican Church was too Catholic and was losing its its religious fire and its religious oomph. So they moved across an ocean before GPS and before you had ocean liners and India technology. They got in a, a boat and and traveled two months and like settled in swampland, you know, like that's amazing that you would want that much religious freedom, that you would go to those links. You know, in, in Pennsylvania, Lutherans were fl- uh, fleeing Germany because of religious persecution. Interestingly, Jews from Dutch Brazil, so Amsterdam, Dutch, uh, settled Brazil, parts of Brazil, and Jewish refugees started immigrating away from Brazil because there was too much religious persecution in Brazil. So Jews moved to the U.S. uh, Before this U.S., this is the colonies, moved to the colonies uh, to flee persecution. Quakers were refugees from Puritanism. So in Puritan New England, a little bit later, Puritanism started feeling religiously confining. Quakers moved away from New England and started their own colonies because they wanted religious freedom. Catholics emigrated to Maryland because they were rejecting Anglicanism because Anglicanism in England was too Protestant and not Catholic enough. So they felt persecuted. So if you see the U.S. colonies, the founding of the U.S. colonies by region as different groups of people seeking religious shelter, the Constitution makes way more sense. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think as, it's important to just point out it's not that they just felt persecuted. There were laws enacted against them. And so there were oh, like sure. fines yeah. and penalties and imprisonment and all sorts of stuff if you practiced your religion. So yeah, that persecution were, was real. I'm not trying to make light of it. Absolutely. No, yeah, I, yeah. I just wanted to yeah. clarify that. They were persecuted. They they were. And and on the other side, they wanted to try to create a new system of society where they would have more freedom to practice their religious beliefs. Okay. So so by the time you had uh, you know, 13 colonies settled. 1787 rolls around and you have a movement called the Federalist Movement, which is saying, hey, we would be stronger if we joined forces and stood up to Britain and other imperialist powers because they're taxing us without representation. This is all going to sound familiar from your eighth grade civics class, uh, you know, and we can form our own society that would be better. But Oh, my gosh, we have so much religious diversity here in the U.S. All of these Christian sects, Christian groups uh, had very different visions of what religion should look like or how society should run. So hence the Constitutional Convention of coming together, creating this political order, gluing all of these jagged pieces that don't naturally fit together and have had conflict in and of themselves, like getting the Quakers to play nice with the Puritans. That's a feat. You know, they don't agree on a lot of things. That's why. Jefferson and some of our quote unquote founding fathers, which a lot of the religious right likes to speak about in glowing terms of like, these are our Christian founding fathers. They've founded the country based on Christian principles. Well, in a sense, yes, because that was kind of what they were working out of was, uh, you know, sort of a philosophical as far as like, you know, Kant and the history of philosophy and Christianity. Uh, in a sense, they were working out, out of a, a Christian understanding, but Christian meaning many, many different forms of Christianity and interpretations of the Bible and interpretations of history. They've got together and Jefferson expressed the sentiment of that constitutional convention and that early work on building the United States of America was the sentiment of it was 
separation of church and state for the purposes of religious freedom. Jefferson would go on to write what's called the Jefferson Bible, which a lot of conservatives don't like to talk about, uh, because here is this guy who is a quote unquote Christian founding father who sliced up about, I don't know, half to more than half of the Bible. He took out all the miraculous stuff that didn't make sense to his logical mind out of the Bible and made his own sort of Frankenstein Bible that would be a moral exemplar uh, instead of a supernatural tome, a supernatural writ or canon. So when the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, all of these people writing these words and signing their names on this had these rich memories and and recent memories of being religiously persecuted and not having their freedom in society so that it's coming out of a place of pain and and hurt and in that memory of not having power right so an entire continent uh of a couple hundred years of wars fought by different religious nationalistic groups like that's what that was europe's uh pedigree right for 1500s 1600s and so they're 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 coming out of that war-torn area where church and state just cause so, so much hard heartache and death and turmoil. Right, right, exactly. You know, in, in like in England, where the king or queen of England is the, literally the head of the Anglican church. I've been watching a lot of The Crown lately. It's very good. Uh, <laughs> they get to decide what the theology is because they have this idea of divine right passed through the head of state. So not only did the U.S. colonies not have a monarchy, but they said, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. They didn't say establishment of a Christian sect. They said the establishment of religion, you know, to incorporate, for example, Jews who are living as their neighbors who wanted to be involved in this great experiment of the United States of America. So what is Christian? So let me ask you, like hearing that, hearing hearing early United States history founded that way. Do you think it's fair to still define this as a Christian nation? Yes and no. I think the problem yeah, is right? the problem is is it was a Christian nation in the sense that you have all these different versions of Christianity, and they can say that they you know, or, or we can look at the history books and say yeah there was there was you know Jewish colonies and all that kind of stuff. But for all intents and purposes, there was still a heavy dose of anti-Semitism within um, the founding of our country, and it was still very much uh, a way to 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 include all forms of Christianity. And maybe I'm just over cynical about all of that and and then also you have to it's it's difficult and it gets muddy is because when people are saying it's a christian nation that we are founded on a christian nation they are discounting a large portion of christianity as not christian when they say that word right. and then they're also <laughs> yeah. capitalizing on the whole revolutionary religious persecution feeling that the constitution was based off of because they attribute them to the same as the founding fathers is that we are escaping our own persecution today. I mean, they're, they're really, they're taking those ideas of persecution in Christianity and they're super and hyper defining what those mean for them in the context today. And then just, you know, going with it uh, full board and not with, with very little concern for, for anyone else. I think that you can point to, all of those people, those men, right, who signed their name to that statement that Congress shall not make a law respecting religion. And in, in the sense, you're saying on paper in word that it's not a Christian nation, but in, indeed it actually is. And like functionally it was. 
all of those men went on to write different things that said it was a Christian nation. You know, all of their all of their writings and their thought patterns and processes, even though they agreed to that, their influence pushed um, a lot of oppression of of non-Christian ideas, especially in the colonization of native of the native tribes. Right. Oh, definitely. Of, of indigenous people. Um there was a sense that if you're going to become American, you're going to be baptized. <laughs> like, so yeah. the, the, the functional relationship between the state and the, the government. Yeah. There's this mutual respect, but they're like, they're melded together on the frontier, right? The state and the, the church are one thing when it comes to outside people groups. So maybe in word, there's this idea that it's not a Christian nation, at least in that one instance, but in function, it very much was and then depending upon your definition of christian yeah it's either a <laughs> right. good thing or a bad thing <laughs> i'd be like i'd be like it's not actually christian <laughs> right christian so the christians that that linked arm and arms right. in charlottesville a few months ago is if, if that's your definition of christianity then right. i would say absolutely let we're a christian nation and that's a good thing and we should move forward in that that mode or that spirit Wait, of christianity what? you're what talking you about the i'm talking about like the idea of inclusivity and justice for for everyone regardless of you know color creed or all the things that that inspire this podcast and and our expression of christianity uh well i'm I'm uncomfortable with that though because like if so if you're defining christianity like just like a moral code of like kind of universal values but you're still kind of pasting that that term christianity over maybe people who wouldn't want to identify that way so and that's that's why i want to point toward the history of the anabaptists there has there has been a history of people who have defined themselves against hegemony People who refused to take state power, refused to to do that and saw themselves yeah, like as, a, yeah. Yeah, as a countercultural movement. And that was their like reading and interpretation of Christianity. And I have a lot of uh, feeling toward that. So well, and and I, I didn't, I didn't just to clarify, I wasn't saying like I was, I was using that as a rhetorical kind of thing of sure, saying sure, that sure. there there's a there's a wide path of Christianity. There's a different there's a different thing meant by Christian when you say the word Christian. Right. What are you saying? Um, and I think that. To say that the people who were on the frontier colonizing people were Christian uh, for some of us is almost like painful because you're like, well, if it's not Christian indeed, then it's not Christian at all. You know, you can't baptize someone and murder their family and say you did the Christian thing because that's not what that is for some of us, especially for people like Anabaptists who were burned at the stake by Calvinists and other people, you know, like that's. The, but 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 there is a historical and antecedent to resisting the the, the hegemony. Sure, yeah, I, but and that's why this conversation about hegemony is so important and, and goes so deep because before you even get to the United States being colonized, that word colonization is incredibly important, right? Because the the history of the West has been a history of of missionizing and, and colonization and colonialism, and in many cases forced. Missionizing, yeah, literally changing people. people's names, <laughs> the names of their cities and their or own personal names, or torturing them, or torturing them. I went, I visited a, a fort in Cuba with uh, my graduate program. We did a religion and politics tour of Cuba. It's incredibly eye opening. We visited a fort where they had preserved as a museum all these torture chambers. Um, you know, making people sit on hot coals and and horrible things, pulling off toes and things until they converted to Christianity. Seriously, and that's that's part of the history of the West itself. So when you're saying that the U.S. is a Christian nation, yeah, because the West has been colonized and missionized 
as Christian to begin with. And so, so Christians know. today would say like, oh, that's not us. We would never do that. That's not the Christian thing to do. And it's like, well, then you have now lost your right to say that this is a Christian nation if you don't own that that's the history of what it was. If you're going to say Christian nation, you're calling into the present this whole past of colonization that was very and the fact brutal. that Christianity had been had to right. be forced through many societies like Ramrod and and you know in that time before technology before you had infrastructure right imagine like getting on a boat going to a new place setting up a new society and that whole society in general all of its laws are wrapped up in a certain religion if you decide to go against the religious order and you get banished it means you actually die there's nowhere else to go this happened a lot in the Salem witch trials and women who wouldn't confess to being witches you know were banished and just sent into the wilderness because so so when your livelihood is completely contingent on the religious order literally uh you know it's hard to say that people are choosing of choosing out of their own free will that religious structure right Right. and well and not only that but you're still operating in a way of colonization you're committing cultural colonization all the time as far as dictating who uh you know the the backlash against pc culture and stuff like that but it's still the same thing reversed is dictating things you can and cannot say like when we had the recent um words that were banned when it came to the 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 budget administration of the um the cdc and don't say this don't say that they well, they were banned, banned with. They, they, well, they weren't officially banned, but they were suggested not to use in their 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 budget right. information or whatever. Yeah, because but it still, wouldn't go over well to use the word. <laughs> exactly, but even still, the the way in in our culture and media, the way that 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 people who ascribe to this being a Christian nation in the the quote unquote traditional sense, they're committing a form of colonization with the way that they approach culture and say this is how we should behave in this situation and and all that kind of stuff. So I don't I don't think. Just because you don't, you didn't participate in a form of colonization that happened, you know, mm-hmm. a couple hundred years ago. It doesn't mean you're not in that same way and in that same. That's mode. actually the point that I wanted to make, Jeff. Like right there toward the end of the conversation, um, and I might as well like just jump on it right now. Is that when people speak of uh, creating? So they call it dominion theology now. Like present, present tense, right now, there are Christians who believe in dominion theology, and that is that Christians should take over all these different aspects of culture, and they should create the hegemony um, through good means, elections, uh, donations, good work, that kind of stuff. And then they get to influence all of society. And it's like, still, uh, they would say that they are spreading love, that their love for people is putting them in a situation where they're more likely to encounter Christ because society is increasingly Christian, um, where they're not allowed to get married to someone of you know, their, their same biological sex because that's a sin against God. And so real love is not allowing people to do evil. It's like making this, this whole place a Christian nation. And what I would say to them is what you just said, Jeff, you are loving in the way of empire. You are loving right. in the way of Christianity with quotes that has been melded since especially the time of Constantine, but especially through the European Reformation is that love for you means I am going to control you. And I would say that that totally smacks against the operation of Jesus, especially in like the book of Mark or in the gospels where it's like, no, it's not, it's not melding with empire. It's not fighting wars against empire. It's this total different way of being in relation to the world. And so like, it's unfortunate. I would say that that's not love. It's not real friendship to, 
to resist pluralism in a society. You know what I mean? Like you're not listening to people. You're not being with people. And that transgresses the heart of, to me, the gospel. But that's a very different vision than some Christians operate under currently that Mona's bringing up. Well, yeah. And it seems like to me, if you if you have to spend all your time being so worried that you're losing your your place in society or your influence, then maybe you're like you're doing something wrong or you're like your ideology is just not that good. Like maybe your theology is not that good. That fear is actually what it is. There's a fear that it can't stand up in the marketplace of ideas. And so we have to tell everyone to to shut the hell up so that we can because it. I actually did a thought experiment one time and I asked people in my family and other people say there was a mall and all these different storefronts were different religions. Would you, your church rent out one of them? It's like a religious mall. So it's all these different churches and temples and mondiers and stuff. Uh, would you rent out one of the spaces? And person after person was like, heck no, I would never give my money to something that would create space for all those different ideas. And I'm like, that, that's a, that's the idea that people function under is that there should be no other voices but the Christian one. So do I hear society. you saying that you're advocating for a free market of ideas, Alan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I believe that if and I believe this personally in kind of like a mystic way. But we'll um, all be Satanists if that happens. I know, right? I, I, I shouldn't be scared of truth. Like the truth was true before I was born. Uh, it'll be true when I die and I'm just getting to know it. And God's not scared of it. And it should be able to stand on its own. Nothing that is worthwhile in my life requires me to kill someone or silence someone or tell someone else to think the exact way that I do for me to value it. And so well, I, I think mean, if Christianity people today true, wouldn't wouldn't want to kill other people, but they would want to enact laws, but they would want to enact laws that force them to break up their their families. Like there's there's right. real things. You and know? that's and, the that's the difference, right? It's like it's great. It's great and fine and good to be a social transformer and to influence people culturally. Yes. But through invitation use, and example that's how and my conversation yes. and love that's that's great that's the good news you know all power to you but if you're going to start using the social the shared uh systems that our collective taxes pay for like our political system and our legislative branch to start enforcing your moral order then that's where it gets into the hegemonic I have sympathy for the Anabaptists who enact their religion by like doing political stunts since the 1500s, right? They, they resist like they, they get arrested because they're anarchists and they're disrupting the peace, like doing these stunts to, to unmask like some of the cultural and structural evils. I'm totally down with that. That goes past listening and being, you know, a loving space to have different things. Like there, there's a prophetic element to that and I'm totally down with, but that is so different than like Bethel, Northern California. In April of last year, this is a giant mega church. Uh, I'd like to talk about this in the future uh, or, or in just a few minutes about their seven mountain mandate. But they they have like a mandate, right, to control the different spheres of humanity, family, church, education, media, economy, government. Like if you can control all these different things, you can then make it a Christian nation. They gave $500,000 to the city of Reading to assist in the funding in funding for police officers. And their specific goal is to control culture and society. And they're making massive donations to law enforcement in their town. And it's like at once you could just be like, oh, that's a good thing. Or sorry, that's probably a tangent. But I think there's real consequences to that kind of theology. Donating is donating, though. I mean, you can donate to whoever you want. That's perfectly 
I mean, well, okay. So then when it comes to the Koch brothers and, and like buying elections, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So maybe I take that back, but yeah, I know people have a right to vote with their money. I think is what sure. I'm trying to say. Right. Sure. Well, I would, I would push back a little bit on this idea of the free market of ideas because I don't think it's that simple when it comes from an evangelical perspective, because you're not dealing with a, a one idea that's better than the other. You're dealing with this underlining theological idea that people at their core are bad. So if you give them a free expression of something that appeals to their immoral nature, like all yeah. the other ideas, then you're like you said before, Alan, you're not loving them. So it's it, for us, it's, it's a, it's an easy issue of let's have a free market of ideas. But for us, the, the, the idea of allowing people to succumb to their, you know, human wilds and temptation and all that kind of stuff, that's not intermixed so heavily in the way that we would approach uh, in, in an exchange of ideas. And I think that that's what makes it more difficult to have an exchange of ideas. And we don't have the sense of eminence that Jesus return is any minute and society is getting increasingly right. wicked. And if you have that underlying belief that's going to completely shape the way you see you know the need for poly- for for the return of order so that we don't turn into Sodom and Gomorrah and get s- fried by divine lightning there's um, a big there's a big movement right now that puts into practice what what you just said so you know dominion theology there's subsets like bethel or kingdom now is one of those two the new apostolic reformation there's and interestingly enough, one of the leaders of YWAM, you guys know YWAM, Youth with a Mission? Yeah. Or uh, Crew. Uh, mm-hmm. the, Crusade for Christ. Yeah, yeah, Crusaders, right? Campus Crusade. The, the founders of those started this like idea a while ago, the, the one that I mentioned, the Seven Mountain Mandate thing. And it's been picked up by all these different groups of mega churches and, and like new apostles and reformers and stuff who basically try to, quote unquote, take the mountain Right. And they try to go to these different like the government, for instance, and to Christianize it. So there's this huge surge of this activity right now. And the question is, like, well, when you Christianize the government, is it going to, like, increase the space for pluralism? <laughs> well, like, well, but if you believe Christian God, doing it. if you believe Jesus should be king, though, do, maybe that makes sense. That's like, actually the thing. Mixing up Jesus's victory with your own political victory has led things. And I, I am. Well, I would say think it. people would say people would say it's not their own political victory. They're they're genuinely trying to restore their their idea of you know ultimate truth and ultimate power. And truth and power are okay, completely when they get one in the same. When, when they get crucified, I'll say that they did a good job. You know, people who chase after power and money tend not to be the ones who are like held in high esteem in the New Testament. That's just looking from a... No, but they're like, held in high esteem in our country, regardless of whether you're on the right <laughs> or the left. But but they're trying to restore, like, a Christological dominion and Christological reign. They believe that, you know, we shouldn't have a monarch. We shouldn't even, we shouldn't even elevate, you know, the president of the United States. Like, Jesus should be king of the country yeah, and the so world. Yeah, so Rome 250... So if that's your schema... Rome 250 ACE, right? Like, before that, there wasn't that. You know what I mean? Like Christ as king wasn't like it didn't mean that for the early Christians. They were this persecuted subset. It's a totally different way of envisioning the Christian mission. Yeah, it is. Because the Christ of the New Testament did not use government or military or stuff like that to take power. That's the whole point. Like the whole point is like a rejection of that. Mm -hmm. Turn the other cheek. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> kill for and, real. Be killed instead of kill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, it definitely yeah. is. And, and it's so funny. Like, if I can just say an aside, like, I think it's funny that the religious right is really afraid of persecution when persecution is exactly what grew the church to be what it is today. That's, that's you know, true. These stories of persecution and, and being under the gun, uh, so to speak, it galvanizes is, is religious witness. power. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't you want to be persecuted? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. But I, I think maybe what this conversation is coming down to me and Alan, as you're talking about, you know, you said a, a few minutes ago, a concept of, you know, truth can stand by itself. Truth is ultimate, regardless of our current interpretations or whatever. I think the difference maybe for me boils down between the religious right and the religious left currently in our country. The religious right believe truth and power should be melded and actualized in societal systems. And the left believes that truth and power should be separated for the sake of both. And that dominionism is dangerous both to the country and to the religion because it it changes the agenda of the religion it waters down its its fiber of love and and neighborliness and turning the other cheek and it it opens the door for uh, manipulative abusive people to come in and, and take control it creates a power vacuum really if you if you have those things weld together and the, the case study that I've mentioned before, I'm going to bring it up again. We're going to link uh, an article in the description uh, about Nazi Germany was a Christian nation. You just have to look at how the church was co-opted by the fascist elements. It was ready for it because it, it, it didn't have the, the Christianity of Germany um, was too easily co-opted by like the, the, those elements. And that's what you're talking about is that it leaves that power vacuum. There's no tension. There's no pushback. And there's uh, no prophetic witness left anymore. Right. If the church is completely melded with the government. And that's mm-hmm. Germany's a great example. It uh, really is. The archbishop of the Lutheran church in Germany, when the Nazis rose to power was, there was such a nationalistic push because Germany had been decimated after world war one. There was so much widespread poverty. That was like the comeback tour of, you know, the Nazi party was going to establish Germany as a world, vo- as a world, superpower and things like that so the the archbishop of the lutheran church is famously quoted as saying we're not now called to be christians but to be nazis but to be politicians we're we're supposed to establish this new jerusalem of the nazi party on earth and this is why people like dietrich bonhoeffer were so famous for resisting that prophetically they were famous for resisting the church theocracy the the christianized state because they saw where it was headed to this scary absolutist place that ended up with the death of six million jews in concentration camps so bonhoeffer uh i mean people remember his like nice writings about grace bonhoeffer freaking tried to kill hitler like actively tried to kill him and then died in a concentration camp because he he was a political um extremist against the The, church and the state the 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 problem so the thing that the article that i want to link is that when the the Nazi party was quote unquote good for the church, that's the platform that they ran on. They had signs, they had meetings, speeches that it's like, let's make Germany great again. And that includes, we're going to start praying again, right? <laughs> like, like all the language we've heard. And it, it basically made the church public, sang hymns, did all sorts of stuff. But what that does is it made the church nationalistic. And so it actually, like you had the Nazi flag in churches. Church after church after church after church. Wow, that's so awful. I can't imagine a church with a Nazi flag. Well, are there flags in your in your church right now? Like, what kind of resistance do you have to the to the control of of your society? 
Or like the Pledge of Allegiance, right, is a a function of nationalism. The Pledge of Allegiance didn't go back to the founding fathers. It was established in the 50s out of McCarthy-era fear of communist godlessness. So they started having all the kids recite this pledge to boost nationalist experience. Did you know, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. I just found this out. The metric system did not get adopted into the U.S. because early theologians in the middle of the 1800s started pushing back and saying that the inch is actually a closer measurement to God and it's like a biblical measurement. So if we (laughs) don't adopt the metric system, we're going to lose our theological values. You know, Oh, if we do adopt the metric system, then it will adopt. Right. If we do, if we lose the inch, I agree. Those scientists were, they may have said they were (laughs) Christians, but heck no, dude, they argued against like, you know, they argued for heliocentrism. The center, the earth is not the center of the, the universe. How unchristian can you get? And so now we have this wonky, crazy. I was listening to this podcast. It's on 99% Invisible. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's really fascinating. This, um, I mean, this just goes, I think this goes to show you how deeply rooted our ideas of Christian dominance are without us even knowing it, without us even knowing it. There was a science teacher in, uh, New Jersey, I believe. Um, went to a public place, I think it was an airport, and she saw that there was a sign that had um, a temperature reading in Fahrenheit, but the Celsius hadn't been activated yet. So she contacted the airport and said, hey, can you turn the Celsius on? Because, you know, she she's a chemistry teacher. She wants to improve general public comfortability with the metric system because the rest of the world uses it. Science, the whole scientific community in the U.S. uses it. And it's just a generally good thing. She, you know, she's so so she the local paper caught wind of this and they ran a little story on her. She started getting threats on Facebook and in the mail. She started getting all these people just throwing mad shade, not even because she wanted to get rid of the Fahrenheit and the the U.S. system. She just wanted to also include the metric system. People were so angry at her and and not even realizing that this is like in our religious our, our our collective national religious imagination that there is a there are closer ways to god to doing certain things that's christian hegemony at work even if you're not a christian and you get mad about that that means that you're still susceptible to christian hegemony that's awesome <laughs> isn't that crazy yeah i did not know that <laughs> so now this woman now this woman's a huge advocate for like okay screw this we are not an ignorant country this is just pure ignorance and i will not i will not stand for it anymore this is ridiculous like she's becoming um an activist for the metric system because of what it means to her so an inch is an inch she's doing her work <laughs> <laughs> so anyway um so when i'm thinking about when I'm thinking about Christian hegemony, I think it's it's easy. It's great to me to use Foucault, and Foucault's a really dense French philosopher in the 70s um, and 80s. He writes a lot about power and sexuality, but it's interesting to say, to think about power as not being a set thing. His power is, he said, power is everywhere and comes from everywhere. We're all responsible for kind of co-creating power. It's not something that comes from the top down or the bottom up, but it comes from everywhere. And um, this is an interesting quote from him, uh, Foucault and Rabineau. Each society has its regime of truth, he calls it. And I think that's a really helpful phrase, the regime of truth. 
It's general politics of truth. That is the types of discourse which is accepts and makes function as true, the mechanisms and instances which enable one to distinguish true and false statements, the means by which each is sanctioned, the techniques and procedures according value and the acquisition of truth, and the status of those who are charged with saying what counts as true. So thinking about who gets to decide what's true in common sense is really important, especially today when there is an all out war against media and free expression uh, and 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 a huge, a huge push against what is, quote unquote, fake news, because if you can discredit mul- multiplicity of voice and centralize what is true and who gets to decide what is true, you've created a deeper hegemony and a deeper hegemonic structure that excludes people and takes away their voice and makes them invisible and make and takes them out of that collective power. So if you care about democracy, you will want multiplicity. And I say that knowing that the left has been very I, I think part of the reason we've had the political turmoil that we've had is because the left in the last decade or two has gotten into this horrifying cycle of shaming right wing people and shutting them down in a really shameful way. And I think the left is not the left is complicit in the mess that we all find ourselves in. And I've heard this over and over again from my friends and family who are in conservative circles that they feel completely shut down and shut out of the conversation. So instead of shutting people down, engage them, debate them, treat them with dignity, and we can start to heal our collective wounds. Because even even if you are a rainbow flag waving socialist, commie, hippie, uh, if you shut down people who 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 differ from you, then you're no better than the hegemonic hegemonic people that you're that you're criticizing. Maybe slightly better, but not much. (laughs) (laughs) We have to get back to discourse, right? We we have to get back to debate and 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 common decency. We have to, otherwise, having more than two people to vote for, (laughs) having a a plurality of ideas that really well express different positions, rather than these caricatures of truth that we've created. Yeah, yeah, I'm down for that. What one thing I want to say real fast, just from the like religious side or the you know my biblical study side is that just the life of Jesus and the tradition of Jesus resists ideas of hegemony. Every time you see it, uh, Christianity co-opted in a way that takes over power, like in government, Jesus, it gets really far away from the actual person and words of Jesus. So I think it resists that. And I think the left gets a rap for like loving Jesus less or being less moral because they're not always talking about Jesus. But that's a really concerted effort to be pluralistic and exist in a pluralistic society and have a public theology that respects other ways of life and other religious traditions or no religious tradition. So I, I think it's so funny that like in my family, I get pegged as like not caring about faith and it's like just because I don't talk about it doesn't mean I don't care about it. I'm just trying to be respectful. Absolutely. Yeah. You see that in leftist politics a lot. Yeah, like this whole idea that Obama was never a Christian, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's well, ridiculous. I think part of the problem is that, again, going back to that, we've certain people have narrowly defined what Christian is. And I think that that's part of the problem. If we're experiencing any kind of what we want to call truth, whether it's love, justice, connection with someone else, is don't don't ascribe a religious label to it. Just call it what it is and allow us to rest in that and find our commonplace there. And that, you know, that's part of the problem is that love is not exclusively Christian. Even the teachings of Jesus, quite honestly, they're not original. They're coming from another rabbi within the Jewish context that are that are expand. It's just the, the regular flow of ideas as someone comes along and puts it in a context that really captures people and we move from there. So so let's stop, 
you know, cornering any one truth or any one way to our religion and just say, this is what it is. And we can all share into it. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think along those lines, if I can just say one more thought, I think that I'll, I'll use an example from my own personal life. When I left my faith of origin, the faith that I inherited, I felt like I, I felt like I inherited this vault, right? Like we all inherit a vault and in from our parents, from our community, from our Christian, our, our faith or whatever we our, our nation, we inherit a vault of things. And inside that vault, there's like treasures and trash, <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's every person, every person is incumbent to, upon them to go through that vault at some point in your adult life and clear out what and decide what's treasure and what's trash. And I feel like what I did is went through that process of kind of clearing like almost everything out and saying, I want to start over. But I haven't really filled that vault with new treasures of my own. Like I haven't really started to decide in a constructive way. And, or maybe I'm doing that now. What is I actually do value? Like It's just not enough to just be against something. It's not enough to continually deconstruct and, and criticize what's going on in the world. You have to build a better way. And I think that, you know, if for those of us who care about um, progression, cr- progressive Christian imagination, it would behoove us, I think, to really start talking about what we do prize, what we do treasure and what we do want to see come to pass. And, and I think in that way, we start creating a common language with people from other faiths about, you know, what are our universal values? What do what does it look like? What how do we imagine that? How do we co-create it right. um, instead of just being negative all the time because it's exhausting? <laughs> and I think that that that's an entirely new episode at some point to talk about different things in that direction. I love it. I don't even know how to do it. I don't even know if we could fill right. an hour. I'm sure we could. But. Well, for <laughs> everybody's journey is a little bit different. For some, it takes longer. There's more trash to throw away, or maybe it's harder to open the vault. You know, all those different things. And I think that going out into the desert and getting clear of all that and throwing it away is actually the work of faith. That's from my perspective. But I think that it's on all of us, Christian or not, you know. And I don't think anyone on this show has a problem filling an hour of time just by ourselves. So I think we'll be good. Uh, let us know what you think. To add your voice to this particular conversation, you can comment in the show notes at arenacast.com slash 110. Also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the other ways you can like, follow, and contact the show. That's arenacast.com slash 110. On the other side of the music, we are going to be playing a little round of Pursuit of the Trivial and Catching Up with Mona. So we haven't played this particular game, Pursuit of the Trivial, since way back in episode 34. And for those of you that may be joining us for the first time, we probably didn't do a proper, proper introduction and letting you know that that Mona has been a longtime founder, co-host of the show uh, for 100 episodes on. And it wasn't until our recent hiatus and comeback that uh, she's stepped away from being a regular host. But this is her first official episode back since uh, her hiatus. So uh, we thought we I'm would... bringing sexy back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't my. finish that. <laughs> and she's already singing sexy back. Oh, my well. gosh. <laughs> what happened my... to you? <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> I've been playing music. That's what happened. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
So for this particular segment, we've all come up with a, uh, we call it a a Seinfeld type argument, a meaningless thing that maybe we're probably overly passionate about. And then we're going to discuss and hopefully argue a little bit. And then we'll spend some time catching up with Mona, find out how things are going. So, um, Mona, let's start with you. What, what, what are you going to bring to the, the cage, the ring? (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. All right. Are you ready? I would like to know what is the best French fry shape. I have a very strong opinion about this, but I'll let you go first. I think it should be a fried potato in the shape of France. <laughs> arr, arr, arr. <laughs> no, no, no. France and, is not a very exciting shape for. And I and I prefer the term freedom hey, fries as opposed to French fries. Just you know. <laughs> Apropos, <laughs> what do you think, Jeff? Uh, I can tell you that for the most part, as long as it's long and skinny, then it is an appropriate, it is appropriate shape. And it all depends upon the person who is eating the French fry. If you aren't a fry dipper, then it doesn't matter the shape because you're just eating the fry. Oh, I Uh, beg to differ. If, (laughs) if you are a dipper, then I think something with, you know, uh, Ridges on it is helpful to to pick up as much sauce, whatever your particular sauce is. Um, <laughs> oh, the one thing wow. that I am adamantly against, though, calling fries is criss cut fries. They no, are, oh, yes, how dare waffle you? Fries. <laughs> waffle fries, waffle fries are the best. No, they're they're they're, Why? they're they're not fries. They're just potatoes. Jeff, You're frying potatoes. They're fries. I feel that way about ridges. I think that that's no longer a fry. I think of cafeteria food. You guys I are too stringent now, here. Oh, open up your mind. Of, of soundproofing, you know? I certainly not. am not a fan of them, but I would still consider them fries. But Chris cut fries are basically like they're just sliced potatoes with whole Why is that in not them. acceptable? You know, I didn't, I didn't expect to kind of agree with you, Jeff. You're still taking a potato and cutting it up and frying it. I kind of agree with Jeff. I think the what? larger the fry, the closer to potato territory you get. So, like those really thick fries, like really all fries big are ones, potatoes. Alan. Those like aren't fries. Those are they're, wedges. They're not fries. They're wedges. They're wedges. Right? I agree. Exactly. I think I agree. No, I li- think I don't know what you the perfect is, but I know what the the you gross bake and wedges. Okay, is. you bake wedges. You fry crisp cut fries. You put it in a deep fryer. But it's not a fry. It's just a. It's a. It's a waffle. It's a fry. It's crisp cut. <laughs> it's it's a crisp- small waffle. Listen, I'll tell you why it's the best. But Alan, you go fry? first. We'll, we'll return to this in a minute. Alan, <laughs> defend your your position. Is a donut a fry? No, because it's not made out of potatoes. Oh, okay. Uh, if I dropped a potato inside of a fryer and pulled it out, would it be a fry? No, you have to cut it. It has to be cut at some if point. If I cut, if I cut a potato in two and I dropped it in a fryer and gave it to you, would I say these are fries? It wouldn't taste good because the middle no, wouldn't but, cook but, properly. But, first, but yes. You would say yes. they're fries, so yes, then there's nothing for us to talk about because we. It would be a very large planets. fry. It would be a very large fry. Mona, no. if we were talking about the Bible right now, you would be the conservative because you'd be very <laughs> literal. No, you guys would because you're being exclusive of me. No, we're taking the what the what you're the cultural meaning of fry has come to mean, which is a long skinny piece of potato that okay. goes with your burger, not just any okay, potato. Okay, so if fry. I go to the if you're I go to a literalist. fast food restaurant, no, let me no, let me ask you this: If I go to a restaurant and I see on the menu waffle fill in the blanks, what does it say there? They could be wrong. It could be. It's mis. It's mislabeled. You don't just order if you order waffles. You, know, you get something mis- made out of bread. Restaurants. If you, you know, order waffle fries, it's a French fry category. 
Okay, let me tell you why it's the best. Just because someone Screw opens Alan. up a I'm wait, going just now. because someone Listen, opens up a business doesn't mean I'm that under, they're an expert. <laughs> I'm under fire here, so I feel like I need to defend it. Listen, if you're going for taste factor, the ratio of surface area of yeah, the potato true. to the interior of the potato is the greatest maximization of surface area, so it's the best flavor. It's a chip right. fry. I mean, so it's a, it's a small. chip with holes in it. It's not a fry. It's a but chip. you're frying it in a okay. You're Alan, frying you chips. Next. You're frying we'll chips. We'll come back to this. It's sliced <laughs> we'll potatoes. You're frying but chips. Say, but those are so very thin. According to your according to your definition, you would say strings, like little potato strings, are actually the best because they have the largest surface area that's fried. So you might be. Uh, but the texture to me is not as gratifying as like biting into a chewy big <laughs> waffle fry. <laughs> <laughs> but but potato shoestring fries are second for me. So yes, I'm consistent. I okay? think somewhere in the middle between those two is the golden ratio. The golden French fry. The golden French fry ratio. Okay, that'd be interesting. Wow, so, thank you for for giving me an opinion that I never had before. No, <laughs> I feel pretty strongly about it. I freaking love uh, debating. I don't know why I wasn't a lawyer. Okay, Probably because I don't like contracts. I have I have two, but uh, they're um both related and i don't know if i can just go back to back or if i have to wait or something well we're just doing one but, each we don't want to be here forever okay well well i just want to do these two real fast okay I just so lump them together both have to do with the gym first is is it ever appropriate to approach someone at the gym to hit on them like even if it's like super casual or whatever or not if you're interested in someone is it ever appropriate to approach them yes or no I think it's I think it's appropriate, honestly, uh, for, from being a female in workout spaces. Like I, I hate them for that reason. I feel like I'm being watched all the time. I think it's perfectly appropriate to approach someone as a friend. But no, I don't think it's appropriate to hit on them because that's their space. They're paying to be there. They're working out They're They're what if you're attracted to them and you're approaching them by a friend that you're attracted to? Then be friends with happen. someone who's attractive. It's not the end of the world. You can. But you're talking to gym bros. There is no there is gym no bros need a friend. <laughs> So basically what you're really asking, is there any social justification for gym bros? And I would say no, there's not. (laughs) No, I think you have Neanderthal level social skills at that point, then you need a lot of help. And I think that's not that's not your biggest problem is whether or not to approach. a. a Okay, so if you think someone who's attractive, is it ever okay to talk to them in the gym? Talk to them? To, to like be appro- their friend, uh, to approach sure. them and interrupt their workout, their day or whatever. But you have to honor. You have to, to honor no, the context. You have to honor. I wouldn't the context. interrupt them. I would catch them as they're leaving. Right. You would wait in the bushes and catch them as they're leaving. Yeah, That's with crazy. a big butterfly net, <laughs> human size. I think you gotcha. have to, You absolutely have to honor the context in the sense that if something natural within the way that the gym flows, like if I'm moving from one machine to There's another and I'm waiting for someone and I'm waiting for someone on a machine that I want next and conversation happens through like a polite exchange within the context of the gym, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But as far as interruption and approach yeah, but you could, like, for that air sole co- purpose. Like, wait for that equipment. Okay, but so, so you're not talking to just anyone. You're talking to them because you find them attractive. Is that wrong? Because it's appropriate in real life, but in the gym, that's the gym. You know what I mean? Right. That's their space. They're in the zone. I said, leave them alone. Catch them. I would, I would agree say, with Catch them at the end leave of the workout. Alone. Put a group thing together. We're, you know, a bunch of us are going out for drinks. Would you like to come? Like, there's <laughs> there's not only one way to do this. Yeah. And remind yourself that that notion that there's one person for you in the world is false and <laughs> find someone somewhere else. <laughs> I know, right? Find See, and I would think else. like, in, okay, so in a lot of cases, like one time there was somebody who came up to me. And was like, th- this was like the the only thing that's approached like not a cat call as far as attention from the outside, like the opposite 
gender. Uh, this gentleman came up to me and he was like, I just want to let you know, I think you're really beautiful. Have a wonderful day. I don't want anything from you. Just know that someone thinks that. I mean, I thought that was really flattering. Maybe some women would not be comfortable with that. But I think it's a nice thing. But but in the gym, then that you're saying that you know you're basically funny, telling Mona? someone that you've been watching them. So right. That's, of course. That approaches creepy territory. Even I agree. If you do it in a gentlemanly fashion. I think the gym fashion. is a sacred space. You can't do that. I think that's so. my I think you shouldn't opinion. do it. I think I've arrived at that. Total side note. Second one. How long do you have to wait for someone who's on a bench or a machine while they're just sitting there texting and using their phone? How long do you should you wait until you ask? How many sets do you have left? Or just like politely, like, hey, how many do you, do you can you ever ask someone that? Um, and how long should you have to wait? Cause like sometimes there'll be this bench. Someone's been sitting there. They've been texting on their phone and I'll just come up to them and be like, Hey, uh, 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 how many sets do you have left? And that's, and they'll tell me, Oh, I have three or I'll have there two. Should be written like ru- there should be written rules of gender. There is, etiquette. but nobody, nobody listens to him. So, so internally, do you ever approach someone and talk to them or? Well, yeah, but I'm kind of a biatch. So I, I don't care what people <laughs> think of me. I, I I don't I don't have any problem approaching someone. So about you won't that. You, you won't wait one second. You'll walk right up to them if they're on their phone and be like, "Hey, how many sets do you have left?" Oh, exactly. I wouldn't even hesitate. Okay. What about you, Jeff? Um. Well, personally, I would never do that just because right. I wouldn't be in the <laughs> gym long enough, and it would be a perfect excuse not to do that particular exercise if someone else <laughs> is using it. <laughs> uh, but in a hypothetical scenario, how if I was in that that mode? No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. I don't know. It just seems unless it was like excessive. Like if the person a, was just sitting there so texting, yeah, way overboard. Minutes? I don't know if there'd be. A I think of it as a public service. They're not supposed to be texting. They're supposed to be working out. You're helping them get back on track. So, so f- fifteen <laughs> minutes, Jeff, is that excessive? If someone's sitting on the bench for fifteen minutes and hasn't used it, honestly, it would depend upon how impatient I'm being. But I don't. I don't think that that would be. I think it would be more inappropriate the way that you ask, like just a peek over and say, Hey, just wondering real quick. That seems nice and doesn't seem out of context at all. If it was one minute or 10 minutes, but if I'm like, Hey, what are you doing? Hurry up. How much longer do you have? So to me, it, I don't know. It doesn't really, doesn't really matter all that much. As long as you're saying it nicely. I think after 15 minutes it's socially acceptable to walk up to them, take their phone, scream in their face, move your ass and throw their (laughs) phone into the garbage. So my rule, my rule is th- like two and a half minutes. I actually like set my watch sometimes because someone may be doing <laughs> a set. Your watch. <laughs> <laughs> Some, someone may be doing Alan, a this set. Is a level someone of may nerdy, be doing but... a set, and I don't want to interrupt them at all. You know, like the gym is my holy time. I work with people all day long. I I like go through emotions and stuff. The gym is my castle where I don't have to speak to a soul. I don't have to look at anyone, right? I stare That's at the wall. That's why I love living God, in New England so in much. general. <laughs> no, everywhere is life like is that. wonderful. That's just the one place it has to happen. And so if after two and a half minutes, they're still on their phone, I'm like, okay, they're no longer waiting for their set to kind of, you know, their rest period. They're now kind of getting into the, the, the hey, how many sets do you have left range? I so think me, you're overthinking minutes. it. I think you should just, if you feel think like you should think talk to them, you should enough. talk to them. Hey, Mona. You might make people, a friend in the process. People don't think about etiquette enough in the gym. Yes or no? I don't know. I don't, I don't really like, I go, I go to the gym to box and do yoga. And then otherwise I avoid it like the play. Cause I'm like, Jeff, I think it's a horrible place. What's yours, Jeff? All right. Well, I guess mine is more not necessarily to spark debate, but uh, to gauge my own <laughs> um, lack of balance in a particular area. And I'm going to say in the car, um, I, I, I know that I have a tendency, If I'm sure both of you have driven with me at one point in time, but I have a tendency to be a little aggressive behind the wheel. Um, 
You? Yes. <laughs> I've been in the I'm car so many shocked. times throughout my adolescence when you were driving. Late adolescence in my 20s. I'm just very passionate about certain etiquette and rules in, in the road. And when people <laughs> violate those things, I've taken it upon myself to be their teacher uh, in <laughs> whatever way possible. Okay. Uh, What's but the question? The specifically, the specifically, I have a question <laughs> regarding um, your horn. When to use it, how often you should use it, and whether... Because it, it seems to me that the horn itself, you can't express any kind of like tone with when you honk your horn. It's always going to come off as mean to the other person. Like, why'd you honk uh, at me? All that kind of stuff. Uh, so I would that on a daily basis, Jeff, by the way. I wish there was like four different settings. Like, beep. Like, hey. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, give us some emphasis. Cause, a nice cause there's horn the... and a mean horn. <laughs> yeah. Right. So when do you use your horn? How do you use your horn? Is your horn a way of saying being polite or instructive is it is, is it appropriate to <laughs> is it appropriate to use it in in anger to express that anger um for instance like to me one of the polite ways to use your horn is at a stoplight if someone hasn't seen that it's turned green you honk your horn they're texting like you, a moron you, you well, they deserve the even the angry horn like pay no, the freak attention don't. you're driving it's, a it's vehicle that could kill someone in. it's the new world we live in the car's not moving so someone's texting i i whatever everyone has a phone they're not, they're not they're not going to kill anyone. They're just sitting there. If they're not so, moving the car. So you want to okay, honk I'll, your horn in that situation? I'll, I do. I do okay. a tiny little tap. I go beep and I drive a Prius <laughs> so it sounds cute. But like people <laughs> in my family will if someone cuts you off, they honk for a good 15 seconds. It's like to let that person know and all of the generations that come after them that they had done something wrong. Well, Alan, due to my personal experience, I tend to honk a little bit longer with people from your Prius tribe because I, most of my experience is on the road with bad drivers. Someone inevitably is driving a Prius. No offense to hey my now, Prius drivers out there. I'm a former Prius owner myself. Okay, this depends on where you live. It's totally regional because when I first moved to New England, uh, I was driving through a big through Boston and the first time someone like honked at me for because Boston's like you know the roads are like actually laid out on old cow paths so the city's designed by cow logic actually and the roads are wonky <laughs> there's like six-way intersections and everything's a one-way street and they they go nothing goes at a right angle so it's like a really stressful place to drive and the first time i i drove and i didn't even know i was doing wrong but i got honked at i actually cried because i wasn't used to honking as a thing uh you know just but out here, it's much more instructional. It's much more in the, hey, heads up thing. It's, you know, or people honk. It drives me crazy when people honk when they get stuck in traffic. It's like, come on, buddy. Nobody's <laughs> going anywhere. Honking is really not going to fix the situation. Hey, by You're the just way, being an ass. Let, me, let me explode your mind. You're never stuck in traffic. You are traffic. Whoa. Boom. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you are the traffic, dude. <laughs> like you're the one that's causing no. the problem. You are no, the you're problem. not. No, you're not. <laughs> no, because you're you not. are the, you are the victim of someone else's stupidity who's actually causing the traffic about ten cars ahead of you. And when you pass Changing them, it is your much. job to honk at them to continue the further embarrassment that they have for something that they did. I that agree was with stupid. Mona that people who honk when they're stuck in traffic are the funniest species. The funniest. Strain of humanity on the planet. Yeah, I, think I agree so. with that. I, think it's I can't believe you're not that doing happens. anything. You're not but doing once anything you get to the front of that traffic and you realize 
that the person who caused that traffic is doing something stupid, then I say all bets are off and you honk at They're them and let them know that. They're not always doing something stupid. Sometimes like a little old lady's crossing the road or someone hit a deer or but they But that's not stupid. Or... That's not yep. stupid. Sometimes I'm just talking about someone who... Right. like Someone like, has a seizure while they're driving a car and you're angry at them because <laughs> they're having this like... There's a billion so things that can happen and you're so angry at them and it's like, good lord, Or dude. someone's... Uh, people changing lanes. That's like just about the only stupid thing people do that causes traffic. It right. doesn't no, even cause no, that much traffic. That is not true. People cause traffic for... Traffic. Much doing what? Dumber lane changes. And more look, look up things. the YouTube videos on lane changes, the mechanics, the way it works. If you cut someone off, it actually causes like huge traffic down the line. Anyway, so uh I, I'm gonna go with something, Jeff. I do I've, I've arrived at my opinion. I think it is you always use the the polite beep no matter what, even if someone cuts you off, someone puts you in danger, you're letting that person know that they did wrong, you just honk it once. You don't lay on it because it doesn't add to the instruction. You're not shaming them. They already know they did something wrong because you honked. So a little beep, unless you're saving someone's life and they are not, you know, they don't realize that something's going to hit them, and so you lay down on the horn. There's only I, one I, way. I to think honk we the should horn. advocate for car companies to give us multiple horn, horn choices, right? Like ringtones for your car. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they do have like custom horns or something. No, there's only there's only one. It should be no, one horn. No, sometimes for every people car. put in like. Bah, 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 no, like it should be horn. one horn for every car. No, uh, so that nobody's That's surprised no when you honk. Because sometimes it's it's very startling when someone honks, and you may be driving and you're going to hit someone, and you get scared, and so you run someone over. I think there should be one car horn for every single thing, and everybody should only use it like a, a tap. That's you're it. a horn authoritarian. I am now a hornitarian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not. <laughs> let's not use that again. <laughs> that was, a, go that was a good that segment. I like that. I, I I specifically requested arguments about something asinine, like ridiculous arguments about something asinine. So I think we hit it on the head. We and hit it on probably the revealed a little bit too much about our own personalities in the process. Right. Not possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mona, how are you? Catch us up Yo. a little bit. How can people, if you're not on this show on a regular basis, how can people find you? Are you doing something that you would like to let us know about? Yes, I am. I am starting a band, actually, a rock band. That's my new thing. Cool I mean, I've been a musician uh, for a long that. time. I've been a musician for a long time, and I've written songs for, gosh, like a decade. And recently, I think, I don't know if it's like the political situation or just having a lot of like personal rage but i've been writing more rock songs hard rock aggressive you know songs about all kinds of things but especially about social issues and um in the last six months or so i started networking with some different musicians i found a drummer that i like love playing with who's a transgender woman and we've we just had this idea this vision for like the last six months like man wouldn't it be cool to just have like a really good all-female rock band like just a really good like and not even like to to be like super feministy but just to have a rock band that happens to be all female musicians you know um because there's so many all male normative bands out there and and rock is really still pretty male dominant as an industry yeah so we're like dang so we've been working on songs and we started playing a little bit and and just before christmas we met our lead guitar player who introduced us to um our bass player and and our lead guitar player actually teaches that there's a there's a nonprofit in in Boston called Girls Rock Camp and they actually help like girls and women like through like this self-empowerment like 
team building ex- exercise, like learn how to start bands. And so it's like this big new push for women's empowerment to like express yourself and perform and and do this. So so we've been playing together and I got to tell you it sounds incredible. I'm so excited. It, it's just amazing to have to surround myself with like talented musicians and people I just love working with and in the process of of starting an originals band in particular is a super creative process and it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but you know, we're starting to plan making an EP. We don't really have any music released yet, so I'm sorry there's nothing you can really hear on Spotify. I was going to ask, when can I start listening to you in the gym? In a, in a few months, we'll have something ready and maybe I'll come back on um, the show. If you'll so have me and talk about music because I would love to just talk about, you can play some of your music for us. I would love to. Yeah, I would love to. So that's been super exciting and a lot of ups and downs. But so when you process. say when you say rock band, what influence? Like what what type of rock? What is your? Uh, you say you have a rhythm guitar and a, a lead guitar. That sounds like a great start to me. So what? And a bass, yeah. We we stylistically we sound a lot like early Black Sabbath, Ooh, uh, mixed with like nice. some black mixed with like some black keys and um, what what else would I say we sound like? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's it's kind of like rootsy hard rock with like heavy guitars, overdrive, but but like kind of like vocals, I would say like Jefferson Airplane ish in that okay. range. Very yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I'm I'm the lead singer and the band is called Yes Commander. I don't think I've ever heard you really sing in that context. So I'm <laughs> very excited to hear what is the result of your guys' band or Me your ladies' band. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah, I've done a lot of jazz and I've, I was trained classical voice. So this is a different. And actually, I, I was at um, a music store recently looking for effects pedals that I could put on my voice. So I, because if I sing in like a classic rock style, I'm going to shred my vocal cords. Right. So I have to like put other effects on the voice to just like protect my instrument because I still want to be able to sing jazz, you know, when I'm older. So, uh, you know, figuring all this out has been fun. But there's really it's also fun that there's really aren't that many bands that I can point to that were exactly alike. Like I think we're doing something original and I think to me, the songs matter. Like um, I wrote a song about domestic violence. I wrote a song about rape culture, writing a songs about, you know, like our political, our current political moment, but in like a, in kind of a, this is going to sound weird, but like in a catchy way, in a way that still kind of has uh, pop sensibilities, you know? Hmm. Um, so that's like our whole thing, like socially conscious music that you can dance to and and really get into. So we'll we'll see what happens, guys. I'm excited. That sounds amazing. Thanks. So that's really where besides work, that's all my all my time's going to the band. And if you look up the band, you'll notice that I'm working under my real name, Mel Stanford. So don't be confused. It's still me, same person. That's right. And you want if you want the full story on that, you can go back to our episode one hundred at irenacast.com slash one hundred, where uh Mona talks about the, the the use of Mona as her pseudonym for the show. Um, so check that out, com slash 100. Well, Mona, thank you so much for bringing to us this topic and coming back on the show. And, uh, you know, it's just like old times. I felt like we didn't miss a beat. Like it was just like back into that groove, get into that conversation. Uh, very, very <clears throat> fun. Well, we're going on like, what, 15 years now <laughs> <laughs> of doing this kind of thing. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, not the podcast, but no, these conversations just, in general. Yeah. I guess the podcast. Like riding a bike. We're like a, a like a few weeks short of three years doing this. What? Yeah. Hot and before damn. that, we had a good decade, you know. So yeah. we've been doing it for like twelve of just years. Just being or friends. Like yeah. Of, yeah, talking in depth for hours on end. 
as friends and talking real good conversation partners. Yeah. Well, you guys are the best. I have to say just thanks for the work you keep doing. You know, we sometimes Jeff forwards me um, emails from fans that it's just these really remarkable in-depth like people telling us their stories and and what this podcast has meant to a lot of people and i just have to say like jeff you jeff and alan both of you are just thank you for continuing this work i'm sorry i can't be involved all the time anymore but it's awesome to come back on the show and just man keep it up you guys are doing amazing stuff in the world and i'm excited to uh see what happens next very cool that's right well, that will do it for us this week. Alan, how can people find what you got going on on the interwebs? Always Facebook. Go ahead and look me up. Alan, A-L-L-E-N-O-B. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, everything else. Lately, I've been doing a lot of work on uh, immigration justice and ICE stuff. Uh, I'm spearheading a, a group that is going to put on workshops for different city uh, councils and government or government organizations and churches and all kinds of things working on ending the isolation that's created by current practices with ICE detainees. So I spent a lot of my time working on that and actually going to the local detention center. And it's just a very dehumanizing experience for everyone visiting, for everyone involved. And there are a bunch of legal things. So I've been getting more heavily involved in that on the side. And that's going to be probably an episode toward the future. But oh, and I big and I'm now writing again a lot more. So if you want to go to anirenicon.com, or you can go to irenicast.com and click on the blog at the top. Yeah, uh, I have been putting up um, just for a long time. I've been journaling kind of contemplative Christian stuff, which is very different than doing theology or biblical studies. And so lately, I've been kind of crafting them and uploading them to the uh, the website. So if you if, if, that, if that's interesting to you contemplative mystic christianity go check it out it's something i'm going to be doing more and more of nice as for me you can follow me on all the socials at jeff mindledy and also on the second and fourth thursday of every month you can listen to my other podcast divine cinema that i do with dylan and adam where we talk about movies with themes of faith uh, as for Irenicast, if you enjoy what we do here, recommend it to a friend or leave a rating and review for us on whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. We would really appreciate it. Or take your support of the show to the next level and consider going to irenicast.com slash Amazon before you make your next purchase and just shop as usual. By using that link, we'll receive a small percentage of your purchase without any extra cost to you. That'll help us a little in covering some of the costs associated with running the podcast. That's irenicast.com slash Amazon. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. <laughs> I waited for you. I'm oh. Alan. Oh, that so, <laughs> feels so good. You guys. Thanks for joining the conversation. 